This is a messianic study of the book of Romans. It's given in a midrashic setting, which is audience participation. It was given during the months of June through August 2008. The discussion leader is John Behrens. He's pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship. You can reach our website at www.crimsonthread.com. There you can find this study in its entirety as well as other resources for your messianic study of the scriptures. This discussion has been edited and a number of the comments have been either truncated or removed for clarity and continuity. Romans 5 verse 15 But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Yeshua Messiah, bounded to many, for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Let's see if I can unpack that grammatically. <laughs> Uh, Paul is saying is, you eat one piece of fruit and down you go. So one sin was all it took, right? And it takes everybody down with you. And it takes everybody down with you. But the sacrifice of Messiah covers for many sins. So no matter what your sin was, the sacrifice of Messiah covers it. Whereas with Adam, one little piece of fruit fruit out of the out of turn and everybody's down one sin but messiah is that much more powerful because his sacrifice covers all sin say that so makes sense all i'm doing is unpacking grammar here where am i 17 if because of one man's trespass then death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Yeshua Messiah. All right, so what he's saying is he's using a rabbinic argument here. This is what's called a heavy and light. Okay, if this is true, how much more that? Which is to say, you have Adam who's a man who does this and look at all the stuff that happened. How much more then the Son of God when he does something will benefits abound? Okay, so it's a heavy and light argument, if you will. 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by come back here, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law, and again, this is heavy and light. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin re reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Yeshua Messiah, our Lord. And then now 20 is where I want to park for a minute. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Why was Torah given at Sinai? Now let me set this up for you. And, and why the question? We just heard Paul say that before 
Sinai. People died, but there was no counting of sin against them. The question is, you have the period from Sinai to the cross. Okay? During that period, everybody has access now to the Torah. And what Paul is going to say is the Torah makes things much, much worse. Because now, instead of being born as a child of Adam and living a life of comparative innocence and then dying at some point, you now have all of this stuff that you have done willfully in violation of the Torah stacked up against your account. So what Paul is saying is the law just made it worse. So my question to you is, why then did God give the law? Why didn't God just sort of say, oh, okay, Yeshua, go down there, we'll kill you, and it'll all be wiped out and we'll be done. Fred, yeah. One is, it's still the owner's manual for your life. It's still the owner, and things work better that way. And to, to not impart that information, he doesn't really care whether or not you go stumbling through life making mistakes or not. I'm going to at least give you the rules. I'm going to at least give you the rules. You're going to have a lot of trouble with it. You're not going to be changing it all every 3,000 miles. I understand that. But at least going to give you the rules. Because you don't want to not tell your children to not play in the street. So I don't have to get mad at them. I don't want to have to get mad at them when they do play in the street. No, go ahead and tell them. Don't play in the street. When you see them in the street, you do have to get mad at them. You've told them you don't have to get mad at them. But it's better if they know through whatever means that you don't play in the street. So you tell them. So God tells us. That's a, that's a pro that too? Yes, to identify grace? I think so. Paul says that. Okay. So we've got sort of a couple, three answers here. I got a little more. Okay. So there can be morality in the world. Because moral behavior requires A, God making the rules. Because if there isn't a God making the rules, and it's just men making the rules, there's no such thing as morality. Can't have it. But not only does God, you need a God to make the rules, but God has to make those rules known. Otherwise, you can't fairly hold someone accountable for violating the rules. So if you want morality, you have to have those two components. I would agree. Uh, several comments. The, and, and perhaps one more. Uh, the one more that I would add is the rules are necessary in order for Yeshua's sacrifice to count. Okay? In other words, he sets up, it, Paul will say later that you know, his son comes and he lives under the law and was killed under the law. So Yeshua's sacrifice has to be according to the law in order for all of this to work. Under the guidelines. Yep, it has to be done in accordance with, or, or in violation of the rules, or in accordance with the rules, but the rules have to be known. Um, I would agree with Brian's comment that even though you may have to yell at your children for violating the rules, 
you still want to tell your children the rules. First, for their own safety, and second, for their own moral development. Because if you don't have standards to go by, then you have no room for growth. Okay? And so I would agree with all of those. 21. So as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Yeshua Messiah our Lord. Chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who, have, who died to sin still live in it? Now, one of the things to understand here as you're going through this, he is still assuming the Torah applies here because he is exhorting them not to sin. What's the definition of sin? Where is sin defined? In the Torah. Okay? So if the Torah is done away with, exhorting people not to sin, by what standard? You're telling me not to sin. What sin? You just told me the Torah was done away with. You understand? So again, we're going to go into a riff on exhortation to sin and being a slave to sin, and that assumes that there are rules. And the rules are written in the Torah. It's just the way it is. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Messiah Yeshua were baptized into his death? We were buried before with him by baptism into death in order that just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the to the, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. All right, now he has gone through in the end of chapter 5 this comparison of Adam with Messiah. You know, point, 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 point. And so what he's saying is, and all that leads up to, oh, just as Christ died and was raised again, so will you die and be raised again. Where's the dying part? It's the mikvah. The mikvah. Baptism. Okay? It's a symbolic thing. You go through the water and you come up on the far side born again. Jews believe that. Okay? And what it does is it allows you to, tr to transfer between the realm of death and the realm of life. And if you read in Leviticus, all of the situations under which you must take a mikvah. And every one of those situations involves contact with death in some form. So, if you handle a dead body, which is not a sin, you cross over from the realm of life into the realm of death by the contact with a dead body. In order to get back, you have to pass through the water and be reborn. Okay? Women, once a month have the potential for life go out of their body. So they have this brief encounter with death, if you will. And to get back, they go through the waters and they come back up the far side and they are born again. Okay? All sorts of situations where you're supposed to cross from the realm of death into the realm of life. That's what a mikvah or a baptism is. And what Paul is saying here is when you go through the mikvah or through the baptism, what you are doing is you are going through death and coming out into life just like Messiah did. And he literally went through death and came back up into life. Okay? Everybody see the symbolism there? 
And so that's what he's talking about here. Um, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So again, equivalence. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Messiah was being raised from the dead, will never die again. In other words, once he has been raised, he will not die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, for the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Messiah Yeshua. Now, this is by way of exhortation. Is it possible for them to keep sinning? I hope to shout. Done it myself. Okay. So it is possible for them, having gone through the mikvah, the baptism, to come up on the far side and step right back into whatever sin that they started off in. So he's got to exhort them to do this, where he doesn't have to do that with the Messiah, because the Messiah goes down, comes up, is resurrected, and of course he's God and sits on the right hand. Okay, So he, he, he doesn't have the temptations and problems we have. But Paul has got to exhort us, because all of this stuff that we have done is spiritual, not physical. Yes? I was catching verse 8 in my version. says, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. It doesn't say, if we have died with Christ, we shall also live with Him. It's saying we believe we shall. So just as you're saying, you can not come through and live exactly as Christ. But He's exhorting you to believe you can. What he wants you to do when you come out the far side of the mikvah is to be transformed and to start living a life that's modeled on the Torah and the way the Messiah lived it. You know, in Romans you get into this sinless perfection. People, mm -hmm. I've died with Christ, I've raised a new creature, I don't ever sin again. And they argue that to the like, glue in their faith in the face and you're totally frustrated arguing. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I understand the, the argument, and that, I will gently suggest, comes from a Greek understanding of Paul. In other words, what they're doing is they're taking a snippet of Paul and they're arguing syllogistically from it. And they're arguing, I would gently suggest, incorrectly. Because Paul is going to go on, when we get down to 7 and 8, and he is going to bemoan the fact that he still sins. And, you know, this is the guy that wrote most of the most of the New Testament. And he's bemoaning the fact that he still sins. Yeah. And so it is not, in fact, the case that this... How do I say this? Um, you've got to make the change after the salvation. God won't do it for you. And that's what's called sanctification. But you got work to do. And it is not, in fact, the case that God suddenly comes along, changes your diaper, you're a new creation, and you toddle off in perfect innocence and, and remain innocent for the rest of your life.
Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And and they're 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 just not correct. God love them, and I'm sure He does, but they're not correct. Verse twelve, I think. Mm-hmm. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, to make you obey their passions. Do there there is what? What does there refer, refer to? Sin. No. Okay. Bodies. Both are plural. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their bodies' passions. Okay? Do not present your members to sin as an instrument as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God to those who have been brought from as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So, again, what he's saying here is, he, and, and notice that he is personifying sin here. In other words, present your bodies to sin, as if sin were an external thing that you could present your body to. Uh, and I don't have any problem with that, I'm just remarking on the grammar. This phrase, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What does that mean? Does that mean the Torah no longer applies to you? I can't hear you. I agree, it does sound like resist the devil and he will flee. But what I'm saying is, many will interpret this as saying the Torah no longer applies to you. Okay? And I do not believe that's what that means. I think it's talking about the mastery. When you didn't have grace, you were kind of a master. Sin was a master over you through the law. It made you kind of sin. But when when you get under grace, then you're no longer it said in the verse above, it's no longer ruling over you. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree with that. Well, no, let me put it another way. What you now have is a way to break free of sin, which you did not have before. Now, let's go back to our example of Abraham. Remember, we started this riff with Abraham. Was Abraham under law or under grace? Under grace, big time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, one of the things I said a time or two ago is you find more grace in the Old Testament than you'll find in the whole entire New Testament combined. And what Paul is going through in his riff earlier on in chapters 3 and 4, wherever it was, is that Abraham received the righteousness of God, which is the same thing that we receive, and he received it as a gift simply by believing in God, the promises of God. Not in God, the promises of God, trusting in the promises. And that's what Paul is saying applies to us also. And what that does is it allows you to break free of the condemnation, because remember the other thing we talked about is the law contains both blessing and curses. Okay, In other words, God's telling you the rules of his universe. You do this, you get blessed, you can do this, you get cursed. Okay? Real simple. You choose. And, oh, by the way, choose life. Do it the right way. But understand if you don't, there are going to be consequences. And 
absent the grace of God, the only thing that you have left is condemnation. Okay? But understand that Abraham in the Old Testament was also under grace. So this under law doesn't mean what most Sunday Christians think it means. It does not mean that the Torah no longer applies to you. It does. 